Hello, and welcome to another episode of Setting the Tone in ER Retrospective, the show where we do a chronological breakdown of every episode of our favorite TV medical drama. My name is Elizabeth, and with me today, as always, are Lauren. Hello. And Daniel. Hey. Today we'll be discussing Season 2, Episode 14, which is titled The Right Thing. The episode aired on February 8th, 1996. Lauren, what was going on that week 24 years ago? This first one's a big one, so bear with me, kids. Congress passes the Communications Decency Act. At its core, the law provides immunity from liability for providers and users of an interactive computer service who publish information provided by third-party users. Basically, a service like YouTube can't be sued for hosting a pirated movie so long as they take reasonable steps to remove the content. The implications of the act were and are still huge, including recent legislation to try and weaken those protections. So we encourage you to research the topic further. And on a lighter note, Black Sheep debuts and takes the number one spot at the box office, and The Reign of Terror continues as One Sweet Day by Mariah Carey and Boys to Men continues its run atop the music charts. Underrated movie, Black Sheep, I think. Did you ever see it? Meh. Is that uh, Chris Farley? Yeah, Chris Farley and David Spade. It was their follow-up to uh, Tommy Boy. I mean, Tommy Boy. I don't know anything about Black Sheep, so. Fair enough. I just remember, <laughs> I, I remember two things. I remember two vivid things from that movie. Kill Whitey and. <laughs> <laughs> Topical. And, hey, Chris Farley yells in the middle of a, yells it on stage in the middle of a, like a fundraising rally concert. Um, and uh, the boulder falling down, like falling down the mountain and like basically crushing the cabin that they're staying in fine whatever daniel how many viewers do we have this week <laughs> black sheep everybody uh this week we've got th- uh, we are up slightly from last week's episode last week i think we were at around 35 this week we're up to 38.1 million uh viewers uh, this episode is directed by richard thorpe um he was a producer for 174 episodes of the series um and this is his first of 31 episodes that he would direct um, kind of throughout the, the run of the show. It seems like he starts as a producer around 99 or so, and then he's there through um, most of the run from there on out. Um, but this is kind of the one big thing he does. Like his, He doesn't really have an extensive uh, film and television background beyond ER. It seems like he was pretty pretty deep into the ER stuff. So we'll, we'll be seeing his name a lot as we go along. Um, and then this episode was written by Lydia Woodward, who we should be very familiar with by now. So again, we open to a sleeping doctor. This time it is Benton sleeping in his research office. He is woken by Vucelich's assistant, who is dropping off some post-op notes. And she's like, didn't you have surgery this morning? And he's got like drool all over his face and he looks at his watch and he's like, oops, slept in. Was doing, was like re- reviewing case notes last night and I missed it. Shit. Um... And as he's sitting up and, like, looking around, he drops the file he was reading, which was the um, the file on Mrs. Rubidoux. And the assistant says, don't worry, I'll take care of it and put it away. So she's going to clean up the office and everything while he runs and tries to make good on missing a surgery. Yikes. Ugh. So then we cut over from there to Carter, who is jumping onto the L train, and he runs into Susan and Mark. Uh... Susan typically drives into work, uh, and this and she's on a train line that is not near where she lives, so that's automatically strange. Um, so kind of weird that she's on the train in the first place, but doubly weird that she's on the train with Mark. Um, she says they're going to go shopping for tequila for Doug's birthday party at her place after work, um, but she's not scheduled to work until noon, so 
the plot thickens. Um, she does say that her car is in the shop, which might help explain the situation. Carter's just kind of super awkward with this whole exchange. Like he's kind of our audience surrogate for thinking something fishy's going on here. They definitely are leaning heavily into the will they, won't they, Susan and Mark thing this episode, and whether that's them testing the waters for something or if they're just kind of intentionally playing with the audience is kind of up to interpretation. But um, they're definitely going to be playing with that idea this episode for sure. Um, and then also, why is Carter even on the L in the first place? Isn't he rich and owns a Jeep? Like, I mean, I know we haven't seen his Jeep in a while, but come on, man. Maybe he's just trying to be eco-friendly. Yeah. Maybe gas prices are not the best at he's, this time. He's rich. It's fine. Yeah. You know how you stay rich? By saving money where you can. Carter's family is so rich that the whole saving money on gas thing, not really a problem. Maybe he just wants to mingle with the common folk. That could be fair. <laughs> And uh, we got our first audio up. Uh, this is going to be a bit of a listening party episode, so I do apologize for that in advance, and a lot of the clips are kind of long. But this is a very dense episode, and this is an extremely good episode. There's a lot of good stuff here. And I just want to add, you shouldn't mind. You're listening to a show about a 25-year-old show. We assume you're going to be along <laughs> for the ride anyway. Yeah. But still. Play the clip. Yeah. Uh, so our first audio we have then today, uh, Benton is basically trying to do his best to suck up and apologize to... To view Slitch for, for his little oopsie. Doing an endarterectomy at 11, if any of your residents want to observe. Give him an excuse to miss my rounds. I've thought of something. Peter. Morning. Peter, so good of you to wait. I'm sorry, I was working late last night. And, and you I... overslept. It won't happen again. I certainly hope not. If you've been responsible for this patient, I think you might have questioned your professionalism. I stayed up reading some of the research study files. Well, that's very impressive, but diligence is no excuse. There now, the lecture is over. Mrs. Rubidoux, Mr. Roth, Warrington, Dorgan, McFarlane. And these patients have what in common? You use Lazarol and the clamp and run technique on all of them. We use the clamp and run. I went through the charts. I'm just trying to understand why all of these patients were excluded from the study. Well, each had complications which made them unsuitable candidates. Shouldn't we have determined it before the clamp and run? There were emergent cases. Would you have let them die? Of course not. Now, this is the first research project you participated in, isn't it? Yes. Well, then it's my fault. Obviously, I failed to communicate the magnitude and scope of this kind of study. No, I understand the scope. No, I... Peter, I don't think you do. Mrs. Rubidoux had pulmonary disease, renal insufficiency, and congestive heart failure. She was never a candidate for the study. No, thank you, Claire. I'll sign those later. But with Mr. Roth... Ah, with Mr. Roth, we changed surgical procedure in mid-course, which was to the benefit of the patient. Now, would you have us continue to clamp and run just to include him in the study? Uh, no, but there are rules for compiling data, right? We're talking about saving lives. You and I have talked about risks before, particularly when related to this extraordinary level of medicine. We'd never take the first step if we didn't take risks. Now, I hope that as we go along, you can grasp that. I'll try to. Perhaps I was foolish to bring you in on the team. No, sir, I don't think so. Third-year residents rarely have the maturity. You are very lucky to have had this opportunity. Perhaps you don't realize how lucky you are. Maybe you ought to take the day to consider that. But holy shit, Vucelich, what is your problem? Well, we've already established that he's a snooty fucking jackass. So and now he's just being like, I think he's, I think he knows what Ben's up to. And now he's just finding reasons to get him away from everything. I, I think he knows Benton knows what he's up to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, clearly, I mean, because what, within a couple of minutes, his whole office is going to be cleaned out. So, yeah. 
And then the the, yes. the sheer gaslighting of oh, third year students don't have the maturity. Yeah, Jesus. Um, like I almost I almost wonder because like you know we open we open the episode with the the assistant coming into the office and waking him up with Benton up um and then she's like oh don't worry about it I'll take care of it and then the next time we see his office is emptied out so I almost wonder if he he sniffed it out before he missed that surgery like he realized the pattern of like all the case files that were missing from his records were the ones that had been pulled from the study and so like I wonder if he smoked that out and just sent the assistant to go clean up his shit and get him out of there go confirm it I'm wondering that or if she noticed it when she was putting them all back and like let him know before Benton got to him. True. Yeah. Some shady shit going yeah. on there. Either way, in this case, snitches don't get stitches. Stitches I mean snitches lose their job. Snitches <laughs> snitches snitches don't get to do stitches cuz he doesn't get to do stitches. I, I was going to say snitches don't give stitches. Well, that that works too. Ah. Uh, Words are hard. Yeah, I know. Snitches and stitches are Somehow involved. Yeah. So we go in with some bangs. Cool. Cool. Um, I just have to make note of it now because it's just a habit. Um, Although we were watching a season, se- a few episodes in season seven just for fun because we're masochists like that. Um, no, because we enjoy the show and we wanted to skip ahead. Fair enough. But there was there was twinkles about a plenty in in the episodes we watched in season seven, so they yeah. are coming more. Daniel will have his day. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Um, so then we go to Carter is walking down the hall, juggling gauze pads and drops one on a patient. And Doug's like, hey, since you have so much free time, how about you come help me with this knee laceration in six? And Carter's like, oh, I can't because we've got uh, surgery we have to observe and we have to do rounds with Vucilic shortly. So sorry, my hands are full. And then Benton's like, no, you've got time. Make yourself useful. And Doug's like, all right go do the knee laceration and then Susan's like actually we have a trauma coming in can I take him instead so Susan poaches him and they go off to do a trauma shortly um and then after that uh Jerry wishes Doug a happy birthday yay happy birthday Doug Ross we don't actually ever get a confirmation how old he is now I think I think based on my math he was like 34 35 okay when I did when I did the math around the time he got his um award gotcha um and Doug is like Doug basically denies the fact that it's his birthday, and <laughs> makes a makes a snide comment about a sn- about Groundhog Groundhog Day being over because there's a random stuffed groundhog in between them on the desk. I don't know. Cool. Because once again, I maintain Jerry has the richest backstory of any character on the show. Okay then. Who else would ha- Who else would have a stuffed groundhog? I would. Who else would it make sense for them to have a stuffed? Nobody. Groundhog? It's I would gotta ar- be Jerry. I would argue E Ray. Maybe. Maybe. I don't think he raised too much of a hippie to kill a groundhog. Fair enough. But maybe one of his old uh, jobs was a taxidermist. (laughs) You never know with that man. So, uh, but anyway, uh, Dr. Green, uh, we show up with him, um, is working on a slip and fall. The very, how would you describe the son-in-law? Um nebbish like he's just very like worrisome and like oh you're right i am a screw up like oh my god everything's my fault yeah um but yeah it's a it's a woman her son-in-law was helping uh shovel and he missed he missed a patch of ice and she slipped and uh wound up on her keister (laughs) yes he's very very frenetic and just neurotic 
So then we cut from there out to the trauma, uh, or excuse me, out to the ambulance bay for their first trauma. Uh, Susan and Carter um, pulling a guy from the ambulance. He's a 27-year-old super drunk. Uh, he's covered in some very graphic-looking vomit Oof. on his chest. Um, drank a gallon of vodka and took, quote, some Xanax. It was the only number he could think of. Uh, so and this, he's off to just great start. Yep, and this gentleman's name is Nathan. Yes, and we will definitely be seeing more and more of Nathan uh, and Nathan's friend as we go along, <laughs> who we haven't met yet. Um, but then quickly from there, we cut over to Benton, who has been removed from his surgery assists for the day. Um, Buselich has told the scheduling person to that Benton would be tied up in the ER all day, so take him off all the surgeries. So Benton's gotten put in timeout by Daddy Buselich. Okay, so do we ever establish that Buselich is like, the chief of the surgical department? No. He just has a lot of pull, as everybody mentions, yeah. because okay. he brings in so much money for the hospital. Okay. So he is not the chief, but this woman probably knows that Benton is working with him on a lot of his stuff, so he would know what Benton's schedule looks like. Gotcha. So but, Hicks is still, like, the chief, the yeah. head honcho in the, in the surgical suites. So from there, we go over to uh, Carol and Doug... Uh, there's the hot goss going through the ER is Mark and Susan riding in on the train together and being all chummy with one another. You know, it's not like they're not friends or, you know, colleagues or anything that they wouldn't have any other reason to be ch- uh, to be uh, so buddy, uh, buddy, buddy with one another unless they were sleeping together in the morning, obviously. Um but yeah, they're they're convinced something is going on, and that will be a recurring theme. I would like to note the location that they're doing this gossiping is in like the um, the pharmacy corridor that they have, where it's kind of like a storage room. <laughs> yeah. Because this room later on gets used a lot for very very tense interpersonal conversations, and so it's nice that we're starting to see it more and more. It's like this is a good set piece. This is a good spot to have intimate conversations. Sort of like the confessional. Yeah. It's very very tight. Both, both more Vicodin. I mean, you know, depending on what church you go to. Fair enough. So Mark is working with his slip and fall patient, of whom I don't believe we got her name. She is there with her son-in-law, as we mentioned, and they're just kind of going through her medical history, trying to figure out, you know, Mark asks, did you, did you black out at all? And she goes, no, but I did last time I was here after falling. He goes, well, what happened then? She was like, oh... Um, two months ago, I fell over the puppy and Edward's like, yeah, we got a new puppy because I have commitment issues and we thought maybe it would help me so we can have kids. Um, as Mark is examining her, he goes, do you, do you, do you have your tetanus booster? And she's like, oh, um, I got one three months ago after I tripped over Edward's golf clubs and cut myself on the basement stairs. And then Mark's like, okay. And then she just keeps talking about some more of her accidents including last year he cut her arm open with a weed whacker and we find out that her daughter is the only one in the house with a job and she recently moved in with them so they've been taking care of her and i was just noticing this reads like a case on house just with the sheer absurdity of it piling more and more things yeah but is it lupus it's never lupus except for that like one (laughs) time except for that one time but it's never lupus. How dare you? I I wish that had been the series finale of House, that it was finally lupus that one time. Yeah, this is a very, this is a very 
like you said, the whole episode is kind of dense, but like this is a very dense, especially for a one-off patient that we're not really going to follow up on and do anything with. They put a lot of effort into setting the stage and, and like beefing up this trauma with all this shit or not trauma, but this, this patient history with all this shit that we're just never really going to follow up on or do anything with. Um, it's kind of weird. Um, but we do actually get, um, the, I guess, mother-in-law, I guess is what she is to Edward. Um, we do actually get her name. It's Marguerite. Uh, Marguerite and Edward are our, our pair here. And Marguerite is played by an actress named Nicole, not Nicole, Nicole Mercurio. Um, and she had a lot of credits to her name. Some of the ones that stuck out to me were, once again, X-Files. Like I said, we're going to be seeing more and more X-Files connections here as those shows kind of run parallel. Uh, Flashdance uh, from the 80s, uh, and then CSI as well. Uh, unfortunately, Marguerite passed away in 2016. Um, and then Edward is played by an uh, actor named Dean Cameron, uh, who had 88 credits to his name. And uh, to be perfectly honest with you, not a single one of them jumped out at me except for uh, Straight Out of Compton, the uh, NWA movie from a few years back. Um, but he has he's quite prolific, just not in anything I've actually seen. So fair. Um, I just have to note that the name Marguerite has forever been ruined for me by Resident Evil Seven. I mean, fair. That game's pretty pretty terrifying. So I could see that. Is that the one Jake uh, occasionally drunk streams on? I believe so. That he did like twice. Yeah. Yeah, three times, and then was like, "Nope, I'm done." He got well, too frustrated because, with it because he did it drunk. That's why. <laughs> no, I think if you're just not into horror games, it's going to be pretty hard to get through. Fair enough. Plus, there was a lot of people in walls, ah, which is ugh. Jake's kryptonite. Yeah, that's a, a no no. And we didn't tell him. Yeah, no, that I'm good. I'm good. I'm glad I didn't watch those. Um, but anyway, getting back to the episode, Carter's in a rush to be done with this drunk patient. I uh, just for some reason he just wants to not be anywhere. It seems he wants to be in surgery, and he's pissed that he's not. Yeah, especially because it's not really his fault. It's because Benton is uh has been put in timeout, so he's been put in timeout sort of as well. But he doesn't know that. That's true. Um, but Susan is telling Carter what to do and quizzing him on why they're doing what they're doing. And, you know, he's still being like, okay, can I go? Can I do X, Y, Z instead? And then she's like, no, do a neurological check every 15 minutes and uh, get a stool sample. Uh, and then just quickly in this scene, too, uh, since we forgot to mention it earlier, the uh, drunk, uh, Nathan. Nathan. Uh, right. His... Uh, the actor who plays him is another kind of, oh, hey, it's that guy, too, um, is an actor named Mark Pellegrino, um, which I have to believe that last name is a stage name. Like, like It's also a refreshing Pelle- beverage. I know. Like, was he? did he just see a bottle of water on the way into his first audition? Um, He's like that guy from a Community who cha- legally changes his name to Subway. <laughs> uh, but Mark has... Um, appearances in quite a few movies he's particularly prolific around this time like mid to late 90s um big lebowski is definitely the thing that i recognize him from most um prominently um but he was also in uh, mulholland drive and uh the tv series supernatural was he one of the guys who beat the shit out of jeff bridges in the beginning of the movie yep i'm so proud i caught i don't think he's the one who pees on the rug but i think he's the guy he's the guy who's with the guy who peed on the rug he's not the chinaman who yeah i was about to say (laughs) yeah it's no it's yep mm -hmm. that's not the preferred nomenclature Nomenclature. thank you i could not think of the joke 
It's like, come on, um, someone, someone take this here. I'm not. I swear, I'm not racist. Chinaman <laughs> is not the preferred nomenclature. Asian American, please, dude. Hate the fucking eagles, man. Anyway, um, so then Mark and Doug are just kind of shooting the shit in the hallway, and Mark's like, "Oh, are you ready to to have a drink for your birthday tonight? Because I sure am." And Doug's like, well, yeah, you're ready to celebrate because you finally made a move on Susan and you went home together last night. And it's insinuated because they rode in together this morning. So Doug is fully on the they slept together train. Cue the the 90s uh, sitcom, uh, sitcom, uh, the ooh soundtrack. That's in my head all the time. So from there, actually from right out of this conversation, we get our second trauma of the episode coming in, being brought in by um, the EMTs. Um, one of which is a new sort of recurring character. Um, it's Riley Brown, very little baby-faced EMT who um, is just like, his gimmick is that he's like very friendly and like introduces himself to everyone. Um, and I don't know, like, did either one of you recall this character? Because I had completely like blanked him out. Nope. Nope. I was like, I thought I was imagining things. I was like, this is going to be nobody. And then I looked and he actually does appear. So he's kind of like a Rolando level recurring character. He's going to appear in seven episodes total. This is his first of seven appearances for Riley. Um, and he's played by an actor named Scott Michael Campbell. Um, but he's bringing in our second trauma of the episode, Wince, uh, Wilson Wolf. A uh, 50-year-old who stuck his hand in a snowblower, uh, and then they've got his remaining fingers that he's uh, needs reattached. Uh, they've got those in a bag. Nice, lovely little to-go bag. Then we go over Carter's drilling Benton on why he doesn't have any surgeries to observe today, and Wilson's hand uh, just starts bleeding, and we got a pumper. Just squirts, uh, does squirt Carter? Or? I think Mark. Okay. Either way, lots of blood. Gross. Um, I also love that the guy's like, why did I reach in there? Like, yeah, he's like, just like, what like, the fuck? Why am I, why the, why did I do this? Why, why am, am I stupid? It um, happens. Yeah. You don't think, and you reach your hand into the garbage disposal to get something out. Can't say I've ever done that. I have all my fingers, so I can't say I have either, but I know it happens. I haven't, I haven't done it like this. Like I didn't reach into a snowblower or anything, but when I nearly cut my thumb off two years ago today, actually. Uh, when I nearly did that, <sighs> it was um, a similar type situation of like being in the hospital or, or doing being going in for surgery afterwards and just thinking to yourself over and over again, like, why was I so stupid? Why did I do that? And then also like replaying the event in your head over and over and over again. And it's just it it can it can really fuck with your head. <laughs> When we do our first lounge episode, I think that has to be the the maiden story that kicks off because we keep hearing whispers <laughs> keep hearing about the day about you almost lost your thumb. Yeah, and, and I'm just like, I need yeah. to know. And you and Jake keep talking about it in our group chat. And <laughs> I know because know. poor Jake had to bear witness to the picture that I sent him because I needed someone to see it. I needed someone <sighs> to know that this had happened. Oh, God. So Jake had to fall on that sword. Still, we, we will need to do it for an episode of The Lounge with a medical content warning. Um, Absolutely. But from there, we check on Susan and Carter are walking in to check on Nathan, and they find a woman fussing over him, and she immediately, like, jumps on him and lays across him, like, lengthwise. So she's just li- literally laying on top of him. Not across him, on top of him. And she's like, no, he's... I have to take care of him. I have to take care of Nathan. He's he's my love. Like, 
I need to be here. And Susan calls security to get her out. And as they're kind of walking away, waiting for um, security, Carter just goes, must be the girlfriend. So we will see both of them more later. And then we got our next audio for you here. Benton uh, takes his concerns about the study falsifications to Mark. What exactly do you suspect? I'm not quite sure. But you do have suspicions? I think he's not including any bad outcomes. And you're certain? Yep. And when you confronted him? He said it wasn't true. But you think it is? Well, he explained two of them, but there are three others. So at first there were five, and now there are only three? Yeah. Well, I'd make sure. Well, I'm going over the charts again. Maybe he can explain all of them. He took me off the surgical service. Well, he could have a dozen of reasons to do that. Look, if I was going to uh, talk to somebody, I mean, officially, who would it be? The dean? Going up against a guy like Vucelich. He's one of the top cardiovascular surgeons in the country. What if it comes down to your word against his? You don't think I should pursue it? If you do and you're wrong, your career's over. It's the first of multiple people in this episode telling Benton, basically, take a shot at the king, you best not miss. <laughs> this is kind of cool, I think. Like, this is the first... It's certainly, if, it, if it's not the first, it's certainly one of the first times I feel like we've ever seen this dynamic relationship between Benton and Green where Benton is almost confiding in Green or, or coming to him as a for like counsel almost like what should I do about this I mean I know part of it is just hospital hierarchy that he's the attending uh, down in the ER but like it, it's cool to see this kind of relationship that we don't normally see between these two yeah I'm here for it though yeah for sure I wish people could give Benton better answers this episode, but I'm glad that Mark's at least reasonable and listens to him. Yeah, he's he's pretty honest with him o- overall. I mean, he's like, hey, if you feel strongly about it, do something about it, but just understand that it might totally fuck up your career. Yeah. But after that, we cut from there out to the ambulance bay where Susan and Mark are returning from lunch, and they are definitely, like I said, they're they're playing with the idea of what if we made this a thing because she's like hanging off his arm as they're coming back from the presumably the diner across the street um i think it's mark who says to susan uh like he's like i can't believe you made me eat that chili so like they're just having this like cutesy like back and forth new relationship banter that would make everybody around them nauseous like it's that sort of like thing so you could understand sort of why the people around them are getting that impression, but um, they get interrupted quickly after that by a guy zooming by on a motorcycle who then crashes through the ER doors um, and then immediately like starts ranting about how his dad is going to kill him. Um, and as he crashes the ER or crashes the, the bike through the ER doors, he comes to a stop right at the window for the admit desk and breaks the right hand side glass panel of the, uh, the admit window, um, which is important for later because we have a couple little technical goofs here. So like, keep that in mind for later that he breaks that right-hand panel of the glass um, when he crashes through. Um, but he's a kid, you know, his dad, dad wouldn't let him have a motorcycle because he says they're unsafe. Gee, I wonder why. Um, says he bought it just that very morning um, and it was going great until the throttle got stuck. So, and uh, so they think they get the bike off of him and then, uh, rush him off to go get him examined so we will talk to uh, this kid a little bit later on one of the weirdest through lines of this episode for sure um so then benton goes back to his research office and he notices the door is unlocked 
And he looks in and it's oddly empty and all of his things are packed up on his desk. Carter barges in and is like, Benton, you know, I heard you quit the study, but I really shouldn't have been the last to know. And Benton's like, who told you I quit the study? And Carter's like, everybody I've run into in the last hour. So that's weird. What the hell? Conspiracy happening. We'll find out more about that a little bit later. Um, And in the meantime, Bike Boy, a.k.a. Paul, is talking about selling his bike to someone in the ER just to offload it before his dad gets there. Then we have our next audio for you. Uh, Ruby's back and specifically is there to see Jeannie or or Ms. Boulay as he so politely refers to her (laughs) as. Miss Boulay? Ruby, what are you doing here? I just wanted to thank you again for all your help. You're welcome. And to let you know my sweetheart passed away yesterday. Oh, Ruby, I'm so sorry. How are you doing? Oh, okay. Not great. I knew it was going to happen, but I, I guess you really never believe it until it does. Anyway, what the, the services are this afternoon at 4 o'clock at the Mount Sinai Cemetery in Wolf Grand. Uh, I know you're busy, but if you'd like to come, it's okay. Thank you, Ruby. I would like to come. Okay, then. I'll I'll see you later. I'll see you later. He seems to be holding it together pretty well. Oh, yeah. He's... Be honest, Carter. You could have avoided this whole problem. Maybe made a friend. Yep. I think he's probably, A, a little bit in shock, and B, just trying to hold it together because it's been such a whirlwind of a couple of days. Because if you're going from your wife passing to a service, then, like, next day... Yeah, that seems like a really quick turnaround. I don't know. I've never arranged a funeral so i wouldn't know but so then we cut from there over to uh carter um he's walking with susan talking about nathan and angel and this i think is probably like peak or whatever the opposite of peak is like awful carter like he's just he refers to them as s-h-p-o-s which yeah subhuman pieces of shit is where he's going with this and it's like ugh. Carter like this is not that is not Carter it's not it's not baby Carter and it's not John Carter MD it's some weird little like you know proto Carter we've we've uh, detoured into the last two or three episodes um, and Susan immediately kind of scolds him and as he walks away um, she stops at the admit desk and turns to Doug who's on the other side of the window and is like Carter's been hanging around Benton too much to which Doug replies haven't we all um and this is kind of the first little bit of the technical stuff that i was talking about earlier um timestamp on this is 1506 if you want to go back and look so a little bit earlier in the episode we had the kid crash through the doors with his bike broke that right hand side panel of the the uh, admit desk glass by 1506 that same very same panel is magically fixed uh but keep your eyes on it because we'll have one more a few minutes later where it that won't necessarily be the case but for right now that glass is doing just fine so then Carter walks up to Jeannie by the elevator and asks how Ruby is doing. And then she lets him know about the service details and invites him along. And he says he can't make it. He's really busy. And then he's like, God, this elevator is going to take forever. I'm going to take the stairs and runs away. And the elevator just dings, dings. right afterwards. 
Um, then after that, we have uh, Susan evaluating Angel, Nathan's girlfriend. Um, Susan asks Angel how long she's had that cough, and you know, she's like, a while, and uh, she's an AIDS patient. Yeah. Um, and she begs Susan not to tell Nathan about her illness, because he's all I have. So, I... This is kind of a new upsetting angle on the uh, AIDS patient thing that, you know, we, we've talked about before how we feel like they kind of have gone to the AIDS patient well a few times in a few different ways, but I feel like this is sort of the most upsetting one that they've done because it centers around this AIDS patient being malicious and, like, maliciously um, obtuse about her condition, like, not wanting to let the other person know. Like, it's it's just sort of... I mean, I'm sure that, that, I'm sure that happens, like, at some level with certain people, but, like, I just... I don't know. It's weird to see it presented here, or it's it's not weird, but it's like upsetting to see it presented here. Like malicious omission. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Although interestingly enough, I said before we were watching some season seven stuff, and one of the storylines in the episode, one of the episodes we watched was uh, a young man had been told had been lied to his entire life. He has uh, HIV, but he was told he has a vitamin deficiency because his mom died of AIDS. And for whatever reason, the grandma didn't want him to go through his life with, I guess, that with the stigma. Yeah. So, so yeah, and the results in his death. So, fun times. Season seven spoilers. Look forward <laughs> spoilers to Spoilers for season seven. So then Paul and Mark are negotiating a price for the bike because, God forbid, Mark have a um, midlife crisis. And Mark writes him a check. And Lydia's like, oh, my God, you're ridiculous. And Mark's like, so I got lucky. Lydia goes, in more ways than one I hear, and starts walking away. And Mark's like, Lydia, what did you hear? We don't hear an answer to what she heard, but he's just like, what the hell? Why is everybody so weird today? So if if the office thirst trap knows that <laughs> there's rumors of you getting laid, everybody knows. So then we go from there to our next patient. Uh, Jeannie is um, working up a gentleman with stomach pain. Uh, and as she's doing so, Carol kind of comes walking past and recognizes the patient as t-ball is his name um she's like is t-ball is that you i haven't seen you in a while she pulls genie aside and lets her know that uh t-ball has a spot in the turkey file which we learned about a few episodes back by now uh which is kind of their their catch-all file for drug-seeking patients patients who come in repeatedly with various complaints of pain um that's undiagnosable and they're just looking for looking for pain medication so she's kind of giving her a heads up on that t-ball uh the character he is played by an actor named tom barry who um was is kind of familiar he's an older older black gentleman um he is uh makes appearances in the first two fast and furious movies as well as independence day and space jam so i think he wins the award this week for the most eclectic filmography on his uh, resume um then we go back over uh susan is uh mad at carter that she hasn't been checking in on nathan you know she he was carter was supposed to get neurological do neurological checks every 15 minutes because you know it did does have some stuff wrong with his head um or his chest film on nathan uh, and sees that mark got the motorcycle and next technical goof yes 1839 on your timestamp. she's back at the admit desk talking to jerry and uh the right hand panel is now missing again they've cleaned up all the shattered glass but the panel itself is missing so yeah and continuing the the ER gossip, Jerry Jerry informs Mark that it only comes with 
Uh, or no, Jerry informs Susan that, you know, the bike only comes with one helmet, so you'll have to get your own. And Jerry says they make a good couple, which they would. Mm. I'm, I ship it 100%. It, like, I think they'd be fine. Yeah. But I think, I think, I think fine is. But there's just, meh. Like, I, I, I could see why, I could see the impulse to want to do it. I just don't feel like we really missed out on anything by them not doing it is where I'm at with it. It's like, meh, okay, sure. It would have worked out a hell of a lot better than Susan and Carter, which is another. We can get into that a few years from now. Okay, too, that's but. that's my favorite nightmare ship. Um, I prefer Susan and Carter <laughs> to Susan and Mark. That but just would feels, you prefer Susan like and Carter now or back in, down in season nine when they start hooking up? Uh, I thought it was really cute when they flirted a little earlier in season one, so I would be here for it whenever. Although it's a kind of an abuse of power for her to hook up with a med student. Yeah. Um, yeah. I th- I think her and adult Carter, not not med student Carter, would be great. Susan deserves a cute boy toy, and she and Mark are too good as friends. I mean, to be fair though, Carter doesn't exactly age poorly throughout this series. Nah, so. nah, he neither, doesn't. Neither does she. <laughs> so no, it was her birthday yeah. yesterday. Oh, happy birthday, Sherry you know, Stringfield! Behind the scenes peak. We're recording this in June, so happy birthday to Sherry Stringfield a month ago. So then someone comes in looking for Doug while Doug is working with a litter of small children who got bit by animals at the zoo. And um, as they're as they're working on the kids, Doug says to Connie, bet you can't wait to have that baby. And wow, Connie is definitely pregnant now. Oh, yeah. She is showing. Super preggers. And she just laughs and she's like, "Uh uh-huh. Yep. Just take care of these kids. Yeah, she's like, the baby's the easy part. It's when they get to be this age that they suck. Something yeah. to that effect. Yep. But guess who that someone that came in looking for Doug is? I don't know. It's his papa. What? Uh, Carol asks who it is, and just there's a lot of melodramatic music, and then Doug just says, my father. <sighs> yeah. Uh, I, just wanted the, I just wanted the Star Fox 64 clip to play, and be like, father? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, so yeah, Doug's dad, uh, he's played by, uh, I think Ray is his name. Is that, does that sound right to everyone? Let me see. They don't make a big to do about it, but, um, I'm pretty sure his name, the character's name is Ray. Um, and he, uh, is played by actor James Ferentino. This is his first of three appearances as Doug's dad. Uh, and the actor unfortunately passed away in 2012. Aww. So, yeah. Uh, so we'll see we'll see Doug's dad a little bit later on um, and apparently two more episodes after this so get ready for that but then we cut over quickly from there to, uh, back to Jeannie uh, talking with Carol about t-ball um, and she says that she uh, checked in the file in the turkey file and that t-ball has always claimed back pain in the past uh, but that this time he's claiming stomach pain so she's gonna run some additional tests just in case and Carol seems to sort of take offense to like she doesn't come right out and say it, but she sort of takes umbrage with uh, Jeannie kind of not taking her at her word about this. And, but she would, I mean, you would think after the last Turkey file sort of debacle from a few episodes back, like you would think that Carol would learn to maybe not go with her gut instinct all the time and let the facts sort of play out for themselves. But um, she still kind of has this bug in her about the drug seeking patients. Like she, tends to want to stick it to them for whatever reason but uh we will circle back to t-ball a little bit later and get the final resolution on that but for now uh 
Chuni's telling Mark that he got a good bike for, you know, a good price. And she's like, oh, Susan can keep it at her place. Does he still have this bike when they start hooking up? Ah, uh, that's a good question. I'm going to say no. I don't think so. But maybe. If you, I don't know. It's an unfortunate time for Mark, so it feels like he would still be have a motorcycle. I also love that they're like, wait, how do you know about motorcycles? And she's, and she's like, five brothers. They're always in the yard. Yeah, I like that. Fleshing out her character a little bit more. Yeah. Good on Chuni. And then I love it when she says that you could keep it at Susan's place, that both Jerry and Mark look at her like a little confused and then she just ducks her head back down like um Angel's films are back and she has pneumocystis and and they go to deliver the news and Angel has run off she's not in her bed her IV is ripped out um then we cut over for our next audio it's some Doug and his pop pop you need to help I can wait I'm a pediatrician right that's a damn exciting job you got here. Only if you're unlucky, which I happen to be today. Don't they need this? They got plenty of those inside. Yeah. Come on, go on out, Doug. Come on, Dougie, okay. go on. You know, I th- my name isn't Come. Dougie anymore. Is that why you came here? To play ball with your boy? <laughs> Not with this. Not this is a basketball. You have a basketball. Remember when you were a kid, I used to put you on my shoulders? <laughs> You'd slam dunk. Two points, two points, you'd scream. <laughs> How's your mother? She's fine. She's happy. God love her. She deserves it. I'll tell you you said so. No, you won't. You wouldn't even tell her you saw me. Afraid it'll upset her. Maybe she'll get all melancholy. Wow. People never gave her enough credit. She's a strong woman. She kind of had to be, didn't she? She walked out on me once. Compared to the 12 times you walked out on her? You mean walked out on you, don't you? What are you doing here, Ray? What do you want from me? I don't want anything from you. You're all over the airwaves, you're a big hero. I was pretty proud of you. I do have regrets. Okay. I gotta get a word. Yeah. Uh, Doug. <sighs> Happy birthday, son. Um, <laughs> I'm all turned around. Is DL this way? It's that way. I love how he immediately goes from like, oh, remember when we used to play catch to how's your mom? Like there's no, no pause, no break, no transition. Let it's me get just... into why I really came here. Yeah. All I could think of was the Mark Wahlberg. So why don't you say hi to your mother for me? So... <laughs> <sighs> um, but yeah, how do we feel about Doug's dad? Maybe a bit disingenuous, but I think his heart's in the right place. Yeah. we're we So far we've only gotten glimpses into Doug's perspective of him and this is the first time we're actually seeing him in the flesh so it's hard to gauge kind of how he is entirely and also too they haven't really been that clear about what it is that why it is that he's estranged from his father you know it's right they've alluded to there being some stuff but like they, they, they don't spell it out you know so it's like it was he abusive was he just never around was he you know it's it's hard to it's hard to know how much we're supposed to hate him really he's not a particularly right. fleshed out character at this point 
This is just a lot of too little, too late. Yeah. Yeah, at the very least, he's a deadbeat dad, kind of. Yeah. And here, here's more of Carter being kind of shitty um, and self-serving. So Carter runs to speak to Vucilich about Benton leaving the study and asks if he can continue on the team because he's learned more from Vucilich than he has from Benton. Ooh. Yep. Playing and both Vucil- sides of the fence. Yep, and Vucelich is like, oh, you know, you're just so overqualified and we don't really typically take students and anything I would have you doing would be scut work that you're already beyond. So, you know, best of luck. Bye. Like, you're booted too, my dude. Um, And then we find out that Nathan won't take an AIDS test, I guess, that Susan had just, like, brought it up as part of the normal battery of tests that they were looking at, and he said that they spook him out. Um, is what Susan says to Mark, and they're talking over, um, just over some films, Susan and Mark are, about the morality of Susan telling Nathan about Angel's AIDS diagnosis, and, you know, Mark's like, ethically, I or morally, I agree with you that you should tell him he deserves to know, but legally, we can't. Like, the guy deserves to know, but we can't be the ones to tell him. The best we can do is get Angel to talk to him. <laughs> About that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so then we go from there to uh, Jeannie uh, telling Carol that it turns out that T-Ball actually has lead poisoning from sleeping in an old building. So, you know, suck it, Carol. Uh, you're not always right when it comes to the drug-seeking <laughs> patients. Um, Why is Carol not in Scrubs? Mm-hmm. Maybe because she's like the supervisor, so. But she's been the supervisor last season, and she's always been in Scrubs. Couldn't tell you. Yeah, it's a maybe good it's question. cold in the yard ER today, so she feels like wearing a sweater. But she doesn't have any Scrubs on at all. It's just a thought. <laughs> don't know. No, it's 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 a valid question. I don't know. I I'm not not a hundred percent sure on. Especially if she's doing any sort of patient care at all, you would think she would be in Scrubs. For real. Um, but we do follow along with Carol. Um, is Connie kind of passes by and is wondering where Doug is, and she tells Connie that Doug will probably never come back because he was out talking to his dad. So clearly, <laughs> there's a lot of history when it comes to Doug and his dad that even Carol is aware of. Um, so I'm hoping, and I mean, it seems like with three for for a character that they're building up, that there's so much backstory and so much history with that we don't see. It seems weird to me that we're only going to get two more appearances of this character before he's gone forever. So I'm, I'm right. Because I don't really remember much of what happens with Doug's dad, so it must not be anything that significant. So I kind of wonder where they're going to take this and how they're going to resolve this whole story. And I love how nonchalantly Carol's just like, oh, he's probably never coming back. Um, then we go over to our uh, next audio. It's, it's kind of a three-parter all involving Carter, so let's just, uh, let's just listen. Have you seen Benton? Uh, he's looking for you to check out some patients. I can't right now. What? There's an arm lacking six, rule out appendicitis in three, and Dr. Lewis wanted to talk to you about that girl, Angel. She's split, AMA. Uh, I can't deal with those right now, Jerry. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. You. Yeah, this is what You tell me. Hey. What the hell are you doing? The wine cooler. What? Really good. What the fuck? Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> 
out. Well, couldn't be because you were drunk again, could it? Hey, man, you leave her alone. Get There's up. nothing wrong with her. Get up! Nathan, make him stop. Carter. You guys are the ones that won't stop. You're Nathan, sick! And you get drunk, and you both forget your IVs. Carter, that's enough! What's Nathan. the matter with you? Oh, man, look what you did. Man. Look what I did? Man, look what I did? Carter, out of here. Out of here, now! Okay, you, back in bed. Kalei, can you help man. Angel out of here? Come on, back in bed, now. I don't want it. So what's going on? You saw what was going on. No, not with them, with you. These people come in here on drugs and booze, and they don't listen to us. And we're supposed to treat them. We're supposed to treat them. What good is it? Tomorrow, they're going to be back in the street doing the same thing. After that, they're going to be back in here doing the same thing to us. Well, that's what the job is. If you don't like them needy... I don't like the abuse. Well, none of us do. Well, at least you're used to it with your sister. You know, when you first got here, we were a little concerned about you. You seemed to care too much. We're not worried about that anymore. What happened to you, Carter? So much to unpack. He's such a little shit. I know, I just want Carter to be okay. Just when he's like, oh, you're used to it, though, because your sister's a shithead. Like, fuck you, dude. Right? I really expected her to push back on that. Like, if you, like, if, if I want to talk shit about Chloe, that's my right as her sister, but, like, you don't really get to do that, medical student. Like, fuck off. It's very similar with, with Doug earlier in the season, all of a sudden being a sad boy out of nowhere. I'm very perplexed by this sudden hard right turn into being an asshole that we've gotten from Carter. Like I think, you know, what we get a little bit later on the, the kind of wrap up of with him and Ruby, I think sort of kind of ties it all up in a bow a little bit where he sort of sees the error of his ways a little bit here. But I still feel like this is sort of an underdeveloped arc for him where he all of a sudden for seemingly no reason veers off into being this like cold judgmental asshole. And it's just very strange. Yeah. And, um, do you want to note the other thing that you noticed during this? Oh yeah, in this clip? this uh, in this very clip we get our second instance of uh, the word shit on network television from this very uh, very television series. Um, if you remember from a few episodes back, it may have even been in the, towards the tail end of season one. Uh, Benton, when he got into the fight with the prosthetic salesman in the parking garage. Um, Punched, punched the guy and then hurt his hand and kind of muttered shit under his breath. This one was a little bit... It doesn't come through on that clip, but I swear when I was watching the episode itself, like, it was clear as day, and it and it even showed up in the captions that Carter says shit when... Oh, it's it's pretty clear in that audio. Yeah. Like, but you're right. Just when... listening listening back to it this time, it didn't sound to me as clear to me as it did when I watched it the first time, where I, it, it almost made my head perk up. I was like, damn, he got away with... Got away with a clear as day shit on network television, even if it is prime time. But I think part of it's probably because when you're watching it on the TV, you see the mouth movements too. True. Yeah, true. So your brain just kind of fills it in a little more. But yeah, just come on, Carter. You're better than this. Yeah. Not a good look. Um. So then we we get a surprise visitor. Loretta is back with her kids. Um. And Mark immediately is like, all right, yeah, Loretta, come on back. And Lydia takes the kids for some hot chocolate because it's too cold for ice cream. And Mark has Connie take Loretta back to exam one. So we're going to follow up. And if you'll recall last time, Mark had found out that she had a cervical cancer diagnosis but could not 
contact her via phone or her address to give her this news. It's been a couple episodes since we've seen her, so just want to remind everybody. But for now, we have another audio clip for you. Someone else, uh, someone else. Uh, well, Doctor Hicks talking to Benson about uh, taking his shot at the king. How do you do it? Playing soccer. But you said he was sixty. With his grandchildren. Large joint effusion. I'll do an arthrocentesis. Tell him to stick to the sidelines. Do you have another minute? Certainly. Dr. Vuselich is telling people that I left the study. I wasn't sure you'd want to talk about it. I didn't exactly leave. Well, Carl's very discreet. He didn't think it would look good that he had to fire his star pupil. <laughs> is that what he said? I believe the euphemism was... We were experiencing a difference in style. <laughs> Hell, I'd have just fired you. Our differences had to do with the data. Who's left in and who's left out? Well, that's a matter of interpretation. It's his research study. He did get the grant on the strength of his reputation and accomplishments. Do you know how much money he brings into this hospital? If you've had a disagreement with Vuselich, I suggest you retreat immediately and apologize. It wasn't a disagreement. Peter, you have the arrogance of a great surgeon, the ego, and someday one hopes the talent. But what you don't have is the ability to get along, to be a member of the team. Once you're a Carl Vuselich, you don't need that, but you can't be a Carl Vuselich without it. Oh, Hicks. Surgery mom telling it like it is. I do like that she calls Peter out that she's like, you have the ego, but you're not there on the talent yet, so get better at getting along with people. But at the same time, like, come on, have Benton's back. At least look into this. Yeah, it's a shitty attitude to have, just generally speaking. Like, I'm not even going to be really that concerned that some ethical impropriety might be going on here because he makes a lot of money for the hospital, so... I'm going to look the other way. Like, it's just kind of a shitty attitude to have, just generally speaking. It's like you said, even if Benton's wrong, like, worst case scenario is that everything is fine and all these patients were excluded for legitimate reasons and the study can continue as as scheduled. But, like, and and a famous surgeon gets his feelings hurt. Like, what are we? what's really at risk by investigating it even a little bit? It's just so dumb. He might leave and go to another hospital. I mean, I guess, but, like... He might take his bu- his football and go home. <sighs> so then we get to Mark and Loretta, um, and Mark tells her that the biopsy was positive for cervical cancer, stage 1B, and that surgery would be needed to confirm. The typical treatment is a radical hysterectomy of removal of the uterus and cervix, and with treatment, the five-year survival rate is over 90%, and, you know, she might need chemo to supplement that. And she just says, my kids won't even be teenagers. Just heartbreaking scene. We've come to love Loretta and just her spirit, and she's doing really well. Work's been going really well for her, and to have this tragedy happen as she's, you know, getting on her feet. I know I know. Mark says that they caught it relatively early, so that's part of why the five-year survival rate is what it is, but... Um, I still was sort of under the impression that cervical cancer was a much more deadly form of cancer that it was generally like if like you get cervical cancer, you're 
you're in rough shape. So I was sort of a little bit confused. But it, speaking as someone without a cervix who would never be, <laughs> never be uh, subject to something like this, like to me, it just seemed like one of those things that I had heard about that like cervical cancer was one of the bad ones. But maybe I'm wrong about that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It's definitely you know not one of the friendlier ones from what I understand. But I think a lot of the problem is that um, if you're not getting your regular screenings, that's mm-hmm. why it makes it so hard to catch early is it's not necessarily heavily symptomatic. Right. So it's not something that, like, she she just happened to mention, hey, I've been spotting. And he was like, well, that's weird. So if if she hadn't mentioned that, you know, who knows how long it would have gone before her next pap smear. Stuff like that, where it's like, you know, what's what's the cause that gets you to finally go into the doctor and get that appropriate screening? Right. And for all of my cervix having listeners out there, get your regular pap smears. I know they're uncomfortable, but look out for yourself. They suck. That's my medical PSA for today. Usually it's seizures, <laughs> but today it's get your damn pap smears. And then from there we go to uh, Carter. He's at the cemetery for Mrs. Rubidoux's service. Just it's a very beautiful uh, Jewish we established. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Based on all this, I I I made I made a rude assumption based on all of the stars of David and uh, Hebrew. Is that writing. the language they were speaking? I don't. I can't. I I meant on the. Oh, did it say in the captions that they were speaking Hebrew? No, no, no. On the um, on the actual gravestones, there's. Oh, okay. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. So it was assumed based on all of the Jewish symbols that it was a Jewish cemetery. Cool. And there's a star of David on her casket. All right. Uh, well, then uh, Jeannie's right there next to Ruby, and it's uh, just another beautiful performance from Bread Buttons. You know, is this okay? So, ne- so now is this his last one until the later seasons? Yes. This is this is it until I believe it's 2005 is when he comes back. So we're talking like season 10 or 11. So it's gonna be a long way down the road before we see Ruby again. Um, but then after, but then after that, uh, Ruby see Ruby sees Carter as Carter's sort of sticking sticking away from the main service, just trying not to butt in. And Ruby sees him as he walks away from the grave, and uh, Carter makes a very very heartfelt apology. Probably the wrong place, definitely the wrong place to do it though. Then um, Ruby <sighs> says one simple line: "This day isn't about you, Mister Carter." Hmm. So good. Mm, like yeah just, the, between that and the speech at uh in the the trauma room at the end of uh if it wasn't last episode the one before um like just those two moments alone i feel like are what really make this storyline like you know we kind of talked about it when it first popped up that like especially you and i lizzie like kind of talked it up as like this is kind of a defining storyline for carter and then i think we were sort of taken back by how in the grand scheme of things how minor it is like it, it, there's really there is no big love's labor lost episode with ruby there is no big traumatic event that kind of um shapes i mean it does shapes shape carter's attitude and demeanor going forward but there's no like we don't see carter crying on the l like we did with green at the end of that episode and and mm. so like I think it's on the strength of those two moments, like where Ruby kind of dresses Carter down in the trauma room. And then here where he 
just kind of solemnly like he doesn't do it with any anger in his voice he doesn't do it with any sort of like vitriol it's all just matter of fact and he's just like dude you still don't get it like this is not about you like it's never been about you like the whole this whole predicament has been has been sort of bred out of carter's inability to live with discomfort like where he just doesn't want to like he doesn't want to give the guy bad news and so he just delayed the inevitable and then eventually that that breeds out and out lying to him and i don't know like i still think this is a highly significant storyline and even though it doesn't have like the the signature episode attached to it i still think that it's one of the most significant storylines especially in carter's character if not the show as a whole yeah, I agree with you. I think it's really, really one of those critical things where, like, I think the reason the two of you remembered it to such a magnitude was because, you know, it is a formative um, series of episodes and moments for Carter and just, um, just you know, it does have a lasting effect in how, in how he behaves with his patients. Like, he gets some of that um, compassion back and some of that honesty back that he had been lacking because he was he got so caught up in the prestige of working with Vucevich and you know trying to impress everybody that he forgot that there were patients that he actually had to care about mm-hmm. and care for yeah it does sort of bring the whole Carter's an asshole storyline full circle and I'm I'm happy about that I'm, I'm I'm hoping that means we're coming through the other side of that but it's good work by red buttons he fucking knocks it out of the park with Ruby, he he does a really good job with that, and I'm excited to to see the return of him several years down the line. Return of the buttons. Return of the, <laughs> return of. The and buttons. he is just so precious too. Like I just, I just want to hug him and buy him a coffee. Yeah, yeah. You really, he really does a good job. Again, in both of those scenes, he really does a good job of conveying the sort of the the pain of this entire situation for him. Um. It's just, it's a really, really strong performance. And I think it it pulls a lot of strong performance out of Noah Wiley as well, too. I think he kind of goes toe-to-toe with him. So kudos to both of them. So we we come out of that scene back in with Susan going in to talk with Nathan, um, who, as he's kind of waking up, his first question is how how Angel is. Um, You know, and he's kind of waxing poetic about his situation he's like i gotta stop this you know angels angels better at this whole life than i am like i've gotta i gotta dry out basically they're they're both codependent alcoholics um and then susan kind of apropos of nothing despite of despite the entire conversation she had with mark earlier and and all sort of wisdom to the contrary she decides to tell nathan that angel has aids and that he needs to get tested and which leads him into a really sort of like painful moment where he's like did could I have it or did I give it to her and like she's like there's no way to know that unless you get tested and blah 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 and it just brings up like these very interesting like ethical questions like obviously he has a right to know from a a personal health standpoint but then there's also her privacy to consider and like I don't know like what what did you all think about it uh, well, first off, I wanted to note that, um, minor thing, uh, Susan says that there's no way to know who would have given it to who if they both have it. Yes. No, I, yeah, you're right. Sorry. Um, but also, yeah, I, I think that, you know, as much as I think, you know, partners need to communicate and Angel should tell him because she's putting his health at risk. I also think Susan definitely overstepped her bounds. 
Yeah, yeah. that's basically my opinion as well. Yeah, like, it's that a was big time gray area. Not great. Um, no, correct me if I'm wrong. Is there not a is there is there not a law though that says that if you are HIV positive and or AIDS positive and uh, are are aware like knowingly aware of that fact and you don't disclose that to your partners that that is in and of itself a crime or am I making that up? That sounds vaguely familiar. Like I feel like but... I've I've heard that, but again, like that's not I I don't have experience with it personally. Like I sh- probably should have asked Jen about this, but like it I feel like I've heard that before. Where if somebody is if they're aware that obviously if you're not aware that's that's a whole other issue but like if you're not if you're aware of it and you intentionally don't disclose that to a sexual partner that that it is in and of itself a crime and i don't know it's it's just it's another one of those just fucked up situations all the way around like susan's in the wrong here she the Angel is in the wrong. Like everybody, everybody's fucked up. Everybody's fucked up in this situation. So, from what I was able to find, in 21 states, laws require persons who are aware that they have HIV to disclose their status to sexual partners, and 12 states require disclosure to needle sharing partners. Several states criminalize one or more behaviors that pose a low or negligible risk for HIV transmission. The maximum sentence length for violating an HIV specific statute is also a matter of state law. Some states have a maximum sentence length as high as up to life in prison, while mm. others have maximum sentence lengths of a, that are less than 10 years. However, only seven states have laws that account for HIV prevention measures that reduce transmission risk, such as condom use and antiretroviral therapy. But suffice to say, like, it, at, at best, it's kind of, a, again, it's a moral ethical thing, and then there could also be a legal component, too, depending on what state they're in, so... Yeah, they said that it was a it was a um, a state's response to the HIV epidemic to try and um, deter high risk behaviors. Regardless, it's a dick move to not disclose. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, absolutely, I would agree with you on that. Always get tested. Always disclose with your partners. Do yourselves a favor. Um, communication is your best friend, guys. Hi, I'm Lauren. I'm your podcast <laughs> mom. Do what I tell you. Clean your room. Get some water. I'm losing my mind. So Lydia mentions at the admit desk because they're still all those kids that had been bitten at the zoo have left. And Al's like, and fuck. And Lydia's like, Al says we should adopt three or four kids after we get married. That'll shut him up. Like if he sees that because the kids were just a nightmare, um, I guess, while they were hanging out. Um, and Doug tells Mark that he has to pass on margaritas tonight. He's just, he's got to stay and follow up with some stuff. And then it turns out that Llama Bite Boy is still here. Um, he was the birthday boy who was kind of the catalyst for all the kids at the zoo. And his dad has not come to pick him up yet. He goes, I hate my birthday. My dad's always late. And Doug's like, yeah, I hate my birthday too. But I got a present from my from my dad, who, not, who doesn't really show up that much. And the kid's like, well, what'd you get? And Doug's dad gave him two tickets to, quote, the Bulls game. <laughs> Which I have to believe those tickets were hard to come by in early 96. Like, Jordan's back. Like, they won the championship that year. Like, I have to believe that those tickets were not cheap. Oh, I can only imagine. But he doesn't even, like, react when he opens it. He just kind of waves the tickets, and it's like, oh, I got tickets to the bowl game. <laughs> so then um, he also says, 
he was he kind of like half whispers to the kid which is really cute and he's like there are some brownies in the refrigerator in the lounge they are not birthday cake and they are not mine but i think we should steal them (laughs) and it's just very sweet so obviously he and this kid chowed out on some birthday brownies together and it's just precious we don't see it happen but just that little mischievous like i think we should steal them it's like good good peds work doug and then we go into our next audio uh sort of the the final confrontation between Vuselich and Benton. Peter. Well, I'm sorry we couldn't meet in my office. I can't get rid of that endarterectomy team from Philadelphia. I, um... I went over the charts again. All of them. Well, I can see that spending a day thinking about this hasn't helped you, so let's just stop right here. Agree to disagree, and you can move on. Apparently, I already have. Oh, I didn't fire you. I just let people know that you quit. Which I hadn't. <laughs> I felt you needed help making that decision. I don't understand. At least three of those patients should not have been excluded from the study. I determine who's in and who's out. I thought the protocol determined that. If you're manipulating the data, how can the study be valid? How dare you question me? I give you the opportunity of a lifetime, and you have the temerity to challenge my reputation. The results won't be accurate. Aren't lives at stake here? Yes, Peter, lives are at stake, lives that I save. Mothers, fathers, grandparents are living because I made choices. I risked everything to do what I know is right. The rules are there for a reason. Grow up, Peter. You're not some junior chemist at the FDA. You're a surgical resident in a struggling county hospital. Now, how do you think money comes into this place? takes more than a please, and I promise to do what's right for my country. It takes results. And that, at any cost, is what I produce. Now, you screw with that. And you will be off surgical service for a hell of a lot longer than one day. Yikes. Dr. Capitalism strikes again. (gasps) I make money, so therefore morals don't matter. Yeah. (laughs) Is that just... That should just be our new snobby doctor noise. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> just yeah, yeah, <laughs> sir. No, just the yeah. Okay, but like, okay. So is this? So I'm assuming this isn't the last we see of Uslich, though. I don't think so, but that is a good question. I'm pretty sure we get because I want to say there is like a big like resolution to all this, like, but it could be that he just sort of dips away into the night, you know, and we never. Yeah never see him again um uh this is his next to last appearance so he will um he will return in the season finale so that's interesting that's kind of interesting that because this seems like a weird place to leave this um to then pick it up in the season finale but i'm assuming we're going to get a lot of like unspoken or unseen exposition with this storyline uh just through benton but without Vuselich actually being on screen but uh, we go from there um, out to the ambulance bay where Angel is outside smoking a cigarette uh, with her like IV pole right next to her. Um, and Susan walks out to meet meet her and says, boy, when they make you stupid or boy, when they made you stupid, they made you really stupid. Uh, I guess because she's Oof. smoking on top of everything else, you know, got to got to hit her on that, too. Um, I mean, if she's going to die soon anyway. Right. AIDS, That's the epitome of smoking you, if you got him. Yeah, let her let her enjoy some vices. But do they make it clear that she's like at a terminal stage? Because like she's she's got at pneumonia, this but they point, can. I mean, at this point when in you time, you have AIDS. 
yeah, when you have AIDS, you don't, I mean, obviously there's no cure, so there's really no coming back for that. You will generally get worse and worse over time. Well, I know, but I wasn't sure, like, you know, for a while they can stabilize and prolong. If, so if I wasn't you are sure Magic Johnson at. and you have a lot of money for treatment, like, <laughs> no, seriously, like, if you if you have a lot <laughs> no, of money for, to, to afford all the medic- medication and to, like, keep up with that shit on a constant basis, then yes, you can keep, which he never has graduated to, like, full-on aids anyway he's just strictly hiv positive but still like you just you would it would need a lot of money and a lot of luck to maintain any sort of quality of life with full-on aids like she's she's gonna go downhill pretty quickly no sorry i just thought of that south park episode where they talk where they talk about it and they say oh yeah the cure for hiv is an injection of a hundred thousand of a hundred thousand dollars liquefied straight into your veins it's unfortunately true Especially around this time, too. I mean, this is the mid-90s. This is the first time in history that they're even sort of getting their arms around AIDS. Like, they're, it's not the, like, it's not the full-blown epidemic that it was in the late 80s, but, like, it's by no means the sort of, like, manageable thing that is not in the public consciousness to this great degree that it is now like it's still a it's still a, a terrible thing and it's still something to be concerned about but it's not this like full on uh you know to use a a modern issue like it's not the pandemic or epidemic that it was in the late 80s so like this at this point in history mid 90s like that's i think the first time that they're really starting to at least get some sort of treatment and some sort of um like grasp on what it is they're fighting um but she's still like especially in her condition where she's a drug user and she seeming and an alcoholic and seemingly has no interest in stopping like fair she's she's not got long but fair susan then also admits that she told uh she told nathan about angel's aids which you know Ugh, that's awkward for everyone. Way to dress down my optimism, Daniel. I'm you, sorry. You straight, you straight up hit me with some some '90s facts. Um, so yeah, I don't even know why she would admit that she told her at that point. Like you're you're already o for one on moral decisions. Why not keep going? I mean, it's gonna she's gonna find out one way or another that he knows. So maybe she's just trying to get out ahead of it and just be like, look rather you hear this from me than from him and then you come back mad at me so shitty situation all around and unfortunately this is where this one ends there's not really a good clear resolution but um from there we go to benton waiting outside the dean's office for a meeting um the dean is currently in a staff meeting so it's gonna be a little bit before before benton can talk to him and at this moment as we are left with benton waiting outside the dean's office we think he is going to risk his career to do what is right um but we have the last couple scenes here uh we've got audio for both of them first one we have mark and susan drinking the previously mentioned margaritas and they are at her place scandal i don't know i just really think i've turned into a cliche don't do this mark yeah, I mean, don't you think I've got that guy about to be divorced look all over me? I mean, here I am in a very attractive single woman's apartment, drinking like I'm still in my 20s, with a brand new used motorcycle. 
You are a guy about to be divorced. Yeah, but I don't have to act like one. Here, try this. Mm. Well, not as good as the first, better than the second. Mm. Does it matter? People at work are making up stories about you anyway. About us, you mean? Hmm. Yeah. And what is that, can I ask you? My car's in the shop. I drop Susie off at my parents, meet up with you to go tequila shopping, and all of a sudden we're having a torrid affair. Who said it was torrid? No one. I'm just assuming it would be. That's not what I meant. That's OK. I know what you meant. I'm sure it would be, too. Why wouldn't it be? <laughs> no reason at all. There's not enough lime in this. Okay, so I have to first off say you, I looked up the actual definition of torrid, and it is very hot and dry. <laughs> full of full of passionate or highly charged emotions arising from sexual love. Or the British term, full of difficulty or tribulation. There it is. So, gross. Um, second, I just have to say, Susan looks absolutely adorable in her little jersey with her hair pulled back. I, I love this scene. I love yeah. the way they did this. I love the way they set this up. Like, this is literally them, and by them I mean the writers. Like, this is them dancing as close to the fire as they can possibly get without, like, getting burned like they're gonna take this as far as they possibly can go without actually pulling the trigger and being like all right we're gonna make them a couple now like it's got all the like the cutesy like flirty romantic tension in there and like it's it's just so really really well done it but still manages to like preserve the friendship after it's all said and done and it's just i think it's really really well done it is, and it's very cute. And I have to ask all you Mark and Susan shippers out here who watched the show when it was airing on its initial run, how much were you freaking out for this? Oh, Let yeah. us know. At, we, are, we are at Set the Tone ER on Twitter or Facebook.com slash Setting the Tone Podcast. I have to imagine Tell there me. was a lot of a lot of appetite for that. Like, that's... There, there weren't many shows that denied their audience the the gratification of you know the will they won't they couple on the show like i I get that we sort of have two of those right now with susan and mark and uh doug and carol but like there's very few shows at this point because i mean like cheers did it like i guess x files didn't really do it like they they sort of stretched that out over the whole run of the show until the very very end um but like there, there weren't many shows that would, would do this that would sort of tease their audience this way and then never actually act on it. Just want them to smooch faces. No. <laughs> anyway, but moving on from that cock tease, uh, we Gross. go to our last uh, scene. It's We have the audio for it. It's a little bit slower, so please do not adjust your podcast app. We are still playing it. Um, it's Benton and... Wait, Bing Rames is back? Bing Rames is alive. Fresh off his uh, Mission Impossible appearance. So. Hey, bro. Hey, what's up, Walt? Same old thing. What happened? You look like you lost your tenth patient. I don't know, man. I don't know. 
I'm off that research study I told you about. I thought the main man loved you. Yeah, well, he was breaking some rules and I called him on it. Were you right? And I just thought it'd be different, man. I mean, the work we were doing, where I was going. Different from what? Different from everything that got me here. You know, scratching my way through med school, playing this game and that game, man. I just, you know, <laughs> you angle for the best residency no matter what, and... Whew. You did what you had to do. What we all have to do every day. Yeah, so what do we keep on doing it? Well, that's up to you, man. The world doesn't change just because you're moving up in it. I went to the dean to uh, tell him what was going on, and uh, I don't know, waited around 20 minutes, and I left. I just left. You know, I'm stupid enough to ruin my career, but I don't even have the courage to do it the right way. You don't understand, Walt. I, I always thought when the time came, I'd do the right thing. He said the name of the episode. He said the thing. <laughs> but just Benton, sweetie. God. Oh, it was good to have Walt back. Um, but yeah, Benton just speaking some truths here and just... You know, you want to be disappointed that he didn't put his stuff, that he didn't go for it and talk to the dean, but at the same time, you realize how much harder he's had to work to get to where he is and how hard it has to be to jeopardize that, especially when it's your word against one of the top surgeons. Yeah, and he does a good job of, Eric LaSalle does a good job of getting that across here, like that internal struggle, like where he, you know, he's, he, pulls the waterworks a little bit towards the end there like but it's not like it's like it's almost like frustrated cry like it's almost like you know he he knows what he needs to do but it's scary and it's like you said he's probably had to work insanely hard more so than a lot of people in his same shoes uh to get where he is and now he's now he's put in a situation where he has to weigh all of that against doing the right thing for something that's like really at the end of the day has nothing to do with him. Like he's not fucking with this study. Like he's not, he didn't do anything wrong. And yet, you know, he could be the one that potentially loses everything behind it. And it's just, it's a really good piece of work by, by Eric LaSalle. And it is our next to last Walt appearance. We only get one more appearance of Walt before he goes away forever. I mean, I think the character, the character doesn't go away, but like seeing Walt is, not a thing anymore i think uh he's another one i think that we get uh in the season finale and then that's it no more walt yeah also in the season seven walt is made mention of but obviously does not appear yeah it would have been nice somewhere down the road just to get one little quick you know even if it was just for a cameo thing i mean i get it ving rames is a huge movie star and he can't be bothered with making this like he's not even a secondary character here he's a he is a like third fourth tier character minor character here so i get why he wouldn't take time out of his schedule to do this but still gonna miss him so 
this was a really fucking dense episode. I was going to say, peek behind the curtain. We actually had to pause about halfway through because I was having such trouble keeping up with the notes. Because there was so much happening so quickly. We were just like, bruh, like we need to process all <laughs> this fucking stuff. It was good, though. I liked it. I mean, it's it's a nice... It, we're, we're firmly, I think, back on the the uptick like we're on the upswing from that little mid-season lull we had around the holidays like we're definitely last week's was was like headed in the right direction and like this was this was a solidly good to above average like good to almost great episode i would say like i would put this in the b plus category for sure yeah no i just it's it's nice to get an episode where there's lots of lasting ramifications and there's lots of um overall just plot movement Mm -hmm. yeah it feels like we got some story traction here which we've really been missing in the early stage well i mean it's not early in season two anymore we're past the halfway point so it seems odd that we're just now really getting our our feet under us with the story um eight episodes left yeah and we've got like what seven no i think there's 23 episodes it's either 20 no 22 22 eight episodes left so we've got eight episodes left so it seems seems odd but I guess season one was so big and so massive that this seems quicker by comparison because it's three episodes shorter. I, I agree it was a solid episode. I just think from a from a production standpoint, it was one of the harder ones we've had to do just because it just bang, 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 bang. There's a lot done. of patience in this one. Like this is this yes. is not a yeah. this is not an episode that's heavy on like we're, okay, we're going to have three patients, and then we're going to talk about a bunch of shit around these three patients. This was like, no, we're going to have like eight or nine patients, and we're going to go into... I mean, look at that that patient uh, we had at the very beginning, the mother-in-law with the, the nephew. Like, they went into so much detail on that for a patient that goes nowhere. Like, and it's... Yeah, we did... That was all, was just that one scene in the beginning. And it's yeah. like, okay, that could have been interesting, but... Yeah. Yeah, I um, it reminds me of the Tarantino episode. Yeah, very similar type storytelling, like just frenetic, like frenetic, but also dense. Like we're going to we're going to cover a lot of ground here, but we're not going to short any one part of it. Like we're going to give you an absurd amount, almost more detail than you need on just about everything. And um, I don't know. I I appreciate it, though. I appreciate this one um, because I think we've had such kind of that lull over the last few weeks. Like I'm appreciating that we're we're definitely headed in the right direction now all right well that's gonna about wrap up our episode for today thank you all very much for listening as always this show is brought to you in part by our patrons over at patreon.com slash saying the tone podcast for only a dollar a month you can get access to our show notes each week for only five dollars a month you can get access to the full season recap episodes a free sticker featuring our favorite desk clerk jerry hashtag team jerry and once our stretch goals are met you'll also get access to a monthly bonus show called the lounge where we talk about what what's going on for us in our lives and pop culture in that moment, as well as monthly movie commentaries where we watch and talk about a movie featuring an ER cast member. We'd also appreciate it if you would follow us on our social media accounts. We are at SetTheToneER on Twitter. We are on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Podcast, And we are at Podcast on Instagram. Our theme music today is provided to us by Andrew Edwards of Blue Police Box Music and Daniel, where can folks find you at? They can find me on Instagram at dan.u, that is y-o-u dot e-l. Uh, they can also find me on my other podcast, The Popular Court, with my co-host Jake Terrell, where we do a different pop culture topic each episode and put it through a little mock trial. 
And Laura, where can folks find you at? Folks can find me live tweeting, learning about the feud between WCW and WWF at my <laughs> personal Twitter at lowbob92345. Um, you can find me on Twitter as well. I am at randomgamer, that's GM3R, as well as on the Popular Courts YouTube channel, uh, doing a Let's Play of Mass Effect Andromeda with new episodes every Friday. Simply search the Popular Court on YouTube and the channel should pop right up. And thanks again, everyone, very much for listening. Please join us again next time and have a great week. Bye.